hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. So today I'm uh, delighted to be joined by the lovely Ruth Marriott uh, from down in uh, Devon, the southeast of, of England. I'm So we're about 400 miles away, I think, something like that. Uh, probably 350 miles away from... from yeah, in the southwest. In yeah. The, <laughs> sorry, southwest, yeah. Um, yeah. Did I say southeast? <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, Southwest. And um, I've got, a, it has a little special, a special place in my heart, just the, just the Southwest. Um, uh, my uh, cousins, my aunt and uncle and cousin used to live in a place called Salcombe in uh, Devon, which is a lovely part of the world. And we had yeah. a couple of, a couple of great holidays down there. Uh, uh, and I always think about the time that my dad fell in the, uh, fell in the river. <laughs> uh and how my cousins ribbed him about falling in the river in the estuary uh, at, at Salcombe for years, years, years after that. They still talk about it for a few years. So, uh, delighted to have our first guest on from that part of the world. And um, welcome, welcome to the show, Ruth. Thank you, Simon. It's great to be here. Yeah. So please, can you introduce yourself to the, to, to the listeners, Ruth? Yeah. Um, my name's Ruth Marriott. I'm the CEO of Families for Children, which is a voluntary adoption agency, as, as Simon said, based in the southwest. And we cover Cornwall, Devon, Somerset and Dorset. So a large expanse of the southwest yeah. area. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I can tell you a bit more about my story in a minute in terms yeah, of who sure. I am and what my background is, if, if that's OK. Brilliant. So when you when you hear this phrase um, "thriving adoptees," the name of this podcast, "thriving adoptees," what does that what does that mean to you, Ruth? Uh, I think at, at the top level for me, it means people who who feel they're able to fully engage with life and feel um, fulfilled in everything they do, and that they're able to thrive in their relationships, their community their families, their careers, whatever it is they choose to do, and that they've had the support to be able to do that uh, through their adoptive parents and through whoever else can support them along that journey, as you'd expect any young person to be able to thrive. Yeah, that's great. I love the uh, the holistic nature of that and and the idea of uh, the idea of choice, you know, whatever they decide to do. So this is, uh, I guess, about empowering Empowering, empowering yeah. adoptees absolutely uh, which, which is a, an interesting thing for me uh, when I think about our school system for example where um, uh, nothing to do with adoptees but just schools schools in general where it's all about the, the it's all about the school's agenda isn't it you know between the uh, the time of between nine o'clock in the morning and three o'clock in the afternoon kids are kid, kids are following the agenda set by the government as in influenced by the kids I don't I don't know why I'm starting talking about that, but it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 I guess because school wasn't. I was a, a guy that um, went along with the school, but now the school thing, I didn't rebel or anything. But when I think about it now, I think how useful was it? Anyway, so that's a bit of an aside, really. Um, I don't normally do. That. I'm doing a lot of asides this morning. This is supposed <laughs> to be your show. Why am I talking so much? Anyway, um, so please, if you could share some of the uh, of, of your story and um, how you got into the. In, into the role yeah, you, you, you yeah. Um, well it's it's a long history I've not got any personal experience of uh, adoption in my own life apart from uh, friends who were adopters uh, when I was uh, a teenager at school and had some friends who were in fact my best friend was but um, there is uh, my rationale and reason for wanting to work in this field is actually much broader it's it's around supporting children to make sure that they have 
um, secure, stable and loving homes, um, where whatever that permanency looks like. And adoption is one of those um, arenas that's extremely valuable for children to make sure that they are able to grow up in a loving family. Um, that's my core being, really. So um, it, it, it follows through my Christian values, but it also follows through all my work history and working uh, primarily with young people and, and adolescents. Um, and a lot of those young people have been on the, um, the either the edge of care or within the care system. Um, and so uh, for me, this is a, a real opportunity to kind of look at how can we support children right from the very youngest age to be able to find those families, the right families for them and to make sure they do get the chance to grow up and, and thrive as adults. Yeah. So what sort of um, uh, what's what sort of uh, settings did you work in? What sort of places did you work in before Families for Children? Yeah, um, well, first I've been a volunteer in the youth group at churches, so I've, I did that for quite a while. Um, um, and, and professionally, I, I started off being a detached youth worker in a very deprived, uh, which at the time was the most deprived uh, area in, in the country, in uh, Plymouth. Um, so literally walking the streets, talking to young people, finding out their views. And that's actually a really very grounded experience because you're in their territory. So if they don't want to talk to you, they don't. Yeah. So you've got to you, you are really being led by what young people want to talk to you about and what they want to engage with. Um, and that's quite powerful. I think it does give young people who don't often feel they've got very much power the opportunity to kind of decide who they want to engage with and who they don't. Um, so I did that for uh, about five years and then uh, went into uh, being a health manager in a voluntary youth agency um, and set up um, a, an early intervention service for young people around psychosis and also one around uh, emerging personality disorder, which uh, don't like labels, but actually what it really means is just for me is about supporting young people and the most need and vulnerabilities who need that support and help them to be able to thrive as they grow so I think all the way through my work career that that's been a, a key theme um, and uh, I worked there for uh, 11 years and I've worked on a national level with uh, the Realising Ambition programme which was uh, I was employed by Catch 22 at that point so again working with young people but also working with other agencies who were supporting young people to find the the best evidence of what works with supporting young people um, and very much listening to what are their issues, what wherever they come from in terms of what their family background is or their lifestyle or uh, where they've found themselves butting up against systems. Um, so for me, um, when I saw the role advertised for, for the CEO for Families for Children, it felt like a real extension of the work I'd already done throughout uh, my uh, past career um, and a real opportunity to look at, you know, working much closer in terms of that nitty gritty about being there and supporting young um, children and young people to find families and um, adopters to be able to find children to make their families more complete. And um, I, I still got, a, as you probably can tell through the way I'm talking, a real passion about what happens to young people as part of that. And I think that that's a really key issue at the moment in relation to adoption about young people's identity, their self-identity, how that relates to um what contact they may have or may not have with uh, birth family, birth relatives, um, how that relates to them growing up uh, as um, an adoptee within school, within communities and their sense of well-being and where they belong. Um, and how you support young people in 
other forms of permanency, for example, through special guardianship or kinship arrangements, who will have very similar aspects within their life, but also some very different experiences as well. And I, it feels to me like it's a real key time with um, the care review coming up about young people getting their voices heard and that ability to enable uh, young people and, and adoptees to be able to thrive. I think it's really important that there's that opportunity to hear directly from uh, pe people's own experience. And, um, and that will, would differ very markedly depending on what their experience has been, but they're all valid and it helps to shape better services, I think, in terms of what we deliver on a local level. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, there's, there's so much there. There's so much there. Um, so uh, a, um, you know, a, a, a varied career, all based around a, a, a very strong uh, central theme coming from coming from your, as you say, coming from your Christian values um, and with a, uh, with the with a thriving theme running through it like a stick of rock. So for uh, any visitors, any listeners from the, the US, that's a that's a piece of candy in it uh, that's <laughs> uh, that is in um, as traditionally sold in British seaside results results and it has letters actually written into it. Um, so that's why we say in the UK, you know, like a stick of rock. So, um, and Plymouth, the, where where Ruth started from, is isn't that where the Pilgrim Fathers sat sat after the it steps? Is. Yeah, so oh, yeah, Mayflower steps on the coast. I don't know where if they do rock at, at, at Plymouth. Um, yeah, <laughs> rock, yeah. Um, uh, so, what have you learned across? What have you learned across this? Um, amazing career about how children thrive that you'd that you'd like to to share with our um, our, our audience my feeling is the key thing is you need to listen to people's story um not make any assumptions about what you think their life might be like and listen in a non-judgmental way uh, about um so that someone can really open up about how they feel. Um, and I think uh, uh, throughout my work, a lot of the work has been about how can we help you to make your goals? How do you achieve them? And you only you can only do that if you listen to them and help them to think about where are the barriers. And some of the barriers are things that young people have in their own life that they can uh, change if they wish to and have some control over some of the things are not and I think that's really a powerful thing to go through as a process of listening to young people and helping them to think that through because then they recognize actually um because quite a lot of anger can come from particular points in their life which uh, they don't have any control over so how do you work through that but then being able to look at the issues that you do have control is really key so uh, we've got a piece of work that uh, we do in our agency. We've got a barn on the edge of uh, Dartmoor. It's about 10 miles outside Plymouth. Um, and we use a developmental youth approach. So we use activities to engage with young people because the key thing is you've got to be able to engage. You've got to like young people. You've got to engage with them. You've got to listen to them and build a trusting relationship. And then they will talk to you about the things that really are deep and matter to them once they know that they've got that ability to be able to engage with you and that you're safe, that you're a safe person to talk to. 
Um, so I, I think that's really key. And I think that that's powerful in terms of also working in uh, families. So I think this fits with um, adoptive families in terms of you can help parents to understand what their young uh, people are thinking and vice versa. You get a different perspective because you're able to have that conversation around what the issues might be. Um, but you also need to have fun opportunities for um, them to be engaged, whether that's the family or young people. Um, but those kind of ways of low level ways of engaging are a really powerful way of building a relationship that people feel they can come and talk to you about the serious things that are going on in their life. Um, and I, I suppose it's the old Paolo Frere phrase, isn't it? It's about you start where people are at, not where you think they're at. You start where they're at. Um, and that might be a very different starting point to where you think they should be. Yeah. Yeah, meet them where they're at. It's interesting. I did um, I did a lot of work in, in, I've done a lot of work in schools over the last uh, seven years. And my starting point to engaging the kids was all, uh, engaging a group of kids was always, always about their dream for the future. Mm. Uh, because that's what, that's what matters to them, you know. So that might be the, the near future, like getting into the school football team or passing the piano exam, or it might be a long-term thing, you know, being a, 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 a vlogger or being a nurse or being a, a dentist or whatever it was. But that, that was how, you know, we, I, I, I met them with what they wanted to, and that came to me, you know, in, in some of the early work, um, I didn't have that idea until I started working with kids. So the engagement piece, you're talking about the engagement, engaging with the story, I guess, uh, looking back, um, you're talking about engaging with, uh, with kids where they are at the moment, how, you know, how are they feeling at the moment? And you're also talking about, you know, the work that you were talking about was about engaging the, the future and that's kind of what mm. where I was so um what do you think and you're talking about engagement engagement uh as the as one of the building blocks or one of the processes that builds relationships um can you expand on on that um yeah, um, I think I'll try and give you a concrete example of some of the work Brilliant. we're doing at the moment. Um, we've got a peer mentor scheme, which are for uh, adopters, which is really uh, is really powerful and growing uh, quite a lot, particularly through COVID. I think um, yeah, people have come forward and want to act as uh, peer mentors for other adopters. So right at the start of people considering adoption, there is some support from somebody who's been there, done it, got the T-shirt and not necessarily a, um, a professional, and they're not approaching you as a professional, but they're approaching you as somebody who is has been through the same kind of experience you've been. Um, and they support uh, adopters through uh, any point in their placement, key transition points. That works really well. It's really powerful because uh, they... Um, our adopters really value the fact that uh, the people they're talking with have had that experience. They understand them and they're not going to be, they don't feel as so restrained as they may do. You would hope they're not, but they may do in a professional uh, conversation. Um, so 
part of that is as part of that process when we were looking for volunteers um what a young person came forward to us uh, the one new person i talked about earlier who said she wanted to be a volunteer and uh, our aim in starting to do work with her is that she wants to we want to like develop a, a peer mentor scheme for adoptees so that we can replicate a similar kind of model uh, based on young people being able to talk to each other. So we're at early days with that, but I think there's real opportunities for that. And I think it's not an either or in terms of where well, you, you, know, you only need somebody to be able to talk with somebody who's been there and had that experience. I don't think that's true. I think you need the, the, the balance between people who've got lived experience and people who have um, trained skills and experience. I think the two go together, but I think it's really, really powerful when professionals listen to the voices of experienced people because that helps inform their practice. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, so that kind of pr uh, program, that peer-link scheme is, is something that's gonna grow. Um, we're a, we see ourselves as a trauma-informed agency in the approaches that we take, and that runs through everything that we, we develop and how we work with people and understand what's been going on for them. And that, uh, I think, is, is key in terms of building those relationships that you try and understand and have a, have an, um, a deeper understanding of what both uh, adopters and adoptees uh, may have gone through or may go through and how those things might come together and you can give that support so I think the peer link scheme um, has got real real strong value for supporting uh, everybody in that adoptive family really uh, whichever side you're on whether you're an adoptee or an adopter in getting your needs met or somewhere that's more likely to get your needs met. I'm not saying we've got the answer to everything because I don't think anybody has but you know we're trying to look at how can we adapt what we do so that it best improves and supports the, both the families we work with and the young people as part of those families. Yeah. So you talked before we started recording, you were talking about different um, transition points and, and, and life points. What have you learned in terms of that thriving, um, uh, perhaps at the different life stages? What, what, have, you, what have you found um, and what have you learned that helps adopted adoptive parents help their adopted children um, transition smoothly and in a way that's that's a continuation if you like of them thriving what what have you yeah. found um i think the key thing we'd say is uh, an organization is that uh to try and do things in a timely way so uh, a, a key theme through everything that we do is right, right support, right time, right place. Um, that you make sure that uh, it, you know, even if you aren't the provider of a service, you listen to what the needs are of, of, of an adopter or an adoptee and enable them to uh, either access things you can do or find the places where they might get support on whatever issue that they might need that. Um, and I think that's really key because support through a lifetime in, in transitions, A, doesn't always mean you're the right agency to deliver it. There are, it depends what the issue is. Um, but you can be that bridge to enable people to get to it. And I think that the, the second part of that, the B, is that you, you, you can all listen. You can all do that starting point of what's, what's the important thing that people need to talk to you about. So a key issue that we've had with transitions that's come up recently and uh, come up quite a number of times is um, uh, 
the number of uh, adoptive families who their their children are reaching the age of uh, legal maturity at 18 and uh, they as a family want to support their child going through that transition and becoming an adult and becoming independent um, but how do they uh, manage that in relation to the rights and needs of the young person who is 18 and can make decisions for themselves? Um, so you, the best way we, we think to do that is to encourage parents to talk with young people. And, and uh, if it's, for example, um, a uh, adopted parent might ring in and say that they think their young person needs counselling, can we uh, provide that? Can we do this? Can we give them a name? Of someone who could support them our response would be we would be happy to talk with the in person about uh counseling that they may or may not want to link into and what the options might be but we couldn't refer a young person to that without their consent and agreement to want to do that um, and i don't think it's coming from parents wanting to not get their child's consent i think they want to just make sure they get support that they need but there is a key transition point there i think for uh, it's not just adopters it's, it's any parent isn't it when their child starts to become independent about them becoming their own person and their own identity and what you can do for them and what you need to do with them and I think it's that conversation yeah yeah that's um that's an that's a, a very clear distinction isn't it for them or with them and I've seen a lot of that I've seen a lot of that in other I'm thinking about a a when I had in, when I had my uh, I had a publishing company, and um, the 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 one of the ladies, one of the women that worked for me, had, had three kids, and she seemed to want to do a lot for them when they were like way too old, in in, mm. in, in my opinion, and I just thought how disempowering mm. that was. Uh, obviously, I kept my <laughs> I kept my counsel to myself, uh, but the. There is a line there between the four and the uh, four and the with. So, um, can you expand on? Can you expand on that? Um, just in terms of what what you find helpful, or is it is it just is it simply about uh, parents weighing that up in their mind? We've made a distinction. Um, what would help? I think it's a process. So I think what we do is uh, listen to the adopters and help them to think through how they might have that conversation with the child or how they might want to step back from it a little bit and think about it in terms of how they felt when they were growing up as a teenager. And the added uh, or not, because I think sometimes uh, adoption may be seen as is that the issue and it may not be it may just be that it's uh, a usual process that people go through in becoming an adult um, or letting go of your children kind of thing uh, whatever family uh, you, group you've got but I think for uh, young people who've been adopted um, uh, adoptees it's really important as part of you know going back to your your topic about thriving adoptees that they learn how to be able to make decisions for themselves that they've got a, a sense of their own self-identity and you only get that by doing that testing out and boundary uh, uh, pushing and, and whilst also having a, a safety net to kind of protect uh, your, your child through that process and I think sometimes it's also about having the safety net for the adoptive parents to feel that they can kind of test that out with somebody else and talk it through yeah 
You made an interesting point of, about, um, you know, is this is this an adoption issue or is this just a a, a teen issue? I guess would be the way of putting it um, succinctly. I was before we spoke. I was talking with an adoptive mum. She's got uh, a couple of um, two two adoptive sons. I think they're eight and eleven, maybe, um, and she was saying that she'd found uh, she'd she'd seen her own tendency to um, attribute something that is a child issue like something that is that every child thinks and feels um, I can't remember what it was that but she was attribu attributing it to adoption and um, I was I shared the story about I, I'm not particularly proud of it um, I I lashed out once when I was a kid at another kid and I, 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 I hit this this other boy I think I was about nine or ten now that you, you could say you know uh, oh that's that's an anger issue Simon to do with uh, adoption trauma or something well maybe but don't don't kids that are not adopted also hit other kids and in, in those you know when I was growing up I'm 54 now so we didn't have we didn't have lunchtime supervisors in the playground and there were fights now as far as I know I was the only one kid that was adopted in that school there might have been other kids that I didn't know out of mm. the 180 in that in that in that small school that I went to for a couple of years but you know we've got this tendency that, that's what this um the doctor Mum said we've got this tendency to um and I'm I'm using her my phrase but it's to pin the tail on the wrong donkey mm. so we, we we say this is an adoption issue and then um, and then I think uh, as as adults, our brains kind of catastrophize, and we and we and, and we, you know we we see everything as an adoption issue. And this, if it's everything is an adoption issue, then it becomes a bigger and bigger issue. And we start focusing on this. This starts worrying and worrying and worrying. Uh, as and um, we get what's called confirmation bias, don't we? So we start seeing we, what we focus on gets bigger, and this kind of snowballs. When it was never to do with adoption, anything. Yeah, it was yeah. never to do with adoption. It was just a child, a child issue. So, have you come across this? Is just is it just me or have you have you, have you no. seen something? Yeah, we have. We've had that discussion very much internally, particularly about one of the things we're um, looking at exploring and developing is um, uh, setting up a. Um, we you we do. We use the barn as a place to do family advantages and, and support for everyone within the family. But it's a really good place because it's out in the middle of nowhere to um, do some joint work, but parallel. So you could work with parents and work with young people. So we've been discussing how that might be and to look at the things like what were you like as a teenager? Uh, what do you think is you know it's, it, for adults to start thinking about and remember what it was like growing up? Because uh, you do forget, don't you? You get your hat, your adult head on your parent head. Um, and we th I've used that before when I've worked in communities, not in adoption, but in communities. And that's been really powerful about people trying to think back about, yeah, OK, at that stage of my life, I was blah, blah, blah. And um, for young people to get an opportunity to explore issues for themselves growing up and then to bring them back together in terms of a conversation between the two about um, 
what they've learned through that process and and you know it's not going to answer everything in a few weeks but it'll start that process of hopefully enabling them to talk at a deeper level than they may have done before about particular issues so i've seen that work really well in community and i think it could work uh, around uh, the adoption community um i think i think that there are some things that are around um adoption whether that's as an adopter or an adoptee um, and, and it's important to kind of be um, open about that and clear about that because uh, there are uh, you know, challenging issues on both sides uh, that do need loving support to work through. But it's about having the space and time to be able to do that without it becoming um, a bigger issue and it escalating out of, into something that it doesn't need to be really, I guess. Um, and uh, you know, adolescence is a, is a key period and key transition period anyway. Um, and so there are bound to be things that are both uh, adoption uh, specific as well as, well, that's just part of growing up as, as a teenager and a family readjusting to having teenagers who are more independent and testing out the boundaries as they grow up. But I think one of the things we have seen is um, through COVID, we did um, a virtual group work uh, with young people who we were really uh, aware we're not going to get very much support from anywhere in the community. It was um, kind of uh, early days, really, about what can we do and how can we support people. Um, and we were asked to, to provide this virtual support with a group of young people who we'd never met. Um, a couple of them were uh, adopter, adoptees and, and the majority were special guardianship young people. And we thought, why would they engage with somebody they'd never met? Why would they engage with us over um, a virtual platform? How's it going to work in practice? How do we enable them to build a relationship? So we took it very much from a, a kind of youth work approach about engaging on the gentle things, texting initially, building it up so they feel more confident to talk or not. And you clearly get a sense of who would value some support and who wouldn't. Um, and that uh, it's only a small group, but that group has continued through to now. Um, and uh, we didn't get uh, we got some funding through the adoption support fund for it for COVID. And that was really helpful. But uh, that stopped at the end of December. But we carried it on without funding to be able to ensure that those young people got some continued support because it was clearly working. And lockdown went on further than anybody anticipated. Um, and I think that, you know, um, you think, why will this work? And it worked because actually it was somebody who was listening to their needs or two workers listening to their needs and helping them to think them through. Sometimes it's just talking about what films they've seen and you know, what they're interested in or um, latest music, whatever it is. Um, but other times they'll talk about quite deep things. And there was there's one new person who um, has never turned their green on they didn't want to be visually seen which is fine if they wanted to to just talk and listen but they've turned up every week and that says to me they are getting something out of it if they've turned up every week um, whether it's the fact that they're able to talk with other young people who've got similar experiences to, to themselves or be in a community that recognizes and understands their particular needs and issues um, as young people and uh, as either in special guardianship or an adoptive family, what are the, what's the impact of that? Um, 
and it's a platform for their view. We have, you know, we have um, talked with young people when things have come up about what's their view about particular things to feed back into participation for young people on a gentle level, their voices, because if they're not ready to talk direct, how do you make sure you get their voices heard? So I think that's that's something that was practical and we saw the value for those young people um, that made a difference and started to address other areas in their life because they've got a route where they felt they were being listened to and it was having impact um, not massive and you wouldn't see massive changes you need more time to kind of work with people we're talking about a few months work but you see some changes and then feeling more confident um, and more empowered in their own right to do what they want to do you know talk about um, I think that's that's really important finding those opportunities um, so what what could you share from from that um, experience with your your charity um, that you think would be of use to uh, adoptive parents listening to to us talking today? Um, what could I share? That's a really good question. I guess it's about um, if you're an adoptive parent and you're going through that key transition period and you're struggling, then reach out to. Um, other adopters who would have gone through some of the experiences look for uh, ways you can engage with uh, either uh, you know your own agency that you've dealt with uh, through being an adopter or through the broader virtual um, opportunities that there are now it's opened up so much more isn't it now with COVID um, and also uh, talk and listen to your young person you know f- find out what are the key things that are that they're worrying about um, I think a big thing that's coming up, particularly for um, adoptees and adopters, is um, the ability to, uh, or not, to make contact with birth family and birth relatives through social media. Um, and uh, on one side, we hear, you know, understandably fears from adopters about, uh, is their child ready to go through this? What if they don't get the, the response they want? How can we make it safe for them? And on the other side, we hear the 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 um, the real desire from the young people to make sense of what's happened to them and why they're going to came to be adopted and what is their story? Because they may have some elements of their life story shared with them from when they were adopted through to whatever stage they're at now. But quite often for them, there's big chunks missing. Um, is that kind of the right way to do it? Is there another way of, of trying to make contact? And I think in the future, contact's going to be uh, a bigger issue in terms of how do you uh, support uh, young people who are adopted and adopters? Um, and the research shows that actually adoptees are, are the most self uh, fulfilled and have a better identity of themselves if they're able to marry the two together so that they understand why they were adopted they've still got links where it's safe to have links with birth relatives or family or understand their history and that their uh, adoptive parents feel able to support them in going through that process with them and alongside them and it doesn't detract from the, that they're the family that they're part of now it's that balance there's some gems there the, um, the thing that had popped into my head before I asked you the last question was around about expectations. So what, you know, you were talking about, you know, you and uh, your organisation and um, uh, engaging with young, young people who had no need to engage with you. And so you were uh, approaching it from a very kind of exploratory um 
exploratory, step-by-step, uh, step, cautious, and it was, and, and you were doing that in a really conscious way, as in you didn't want, you, you didn't want to kind of put your expectations uh, onto the, uh, onto the young people. So it was very, it was all about expectations. And for me, the thing that popped up into my head from that is about, on a big scale, about the expectations that adoptive parents have of adoptees, of mm -hmm. their kids, and the other way around. And so what, what do I mean by that is I, I, I remember um, getting, I, get, I remember getting knocked over. Um, so I, I, I ran I ran across this road. I didn't see this little van pulling out of the side street and it, it, knocked, it knocked me over. And, and you know, like, it was only doing like five miles an hour, 10 miles an hour. So it didn't do a lot of damage. I, I went, I hit the, I hit the, the tarmac, the black top for the, any Americans listening. Uh, and, um, and I remember this bottle of pop fizzing out of my, my blazer pocket. And, um, and I got home and I told them that I'd been knocked down. And, um, and she, she was obviously a, upset about the fact that I'd been in danger. I was about 10 or something like this. But um, she said, oh, and she said something like, oh, you, you silly idiot or something like that. And I thought, oh, kind of like, I didn't do it on purpose. Um, and it's this, like, the, this important of, I don't know what that's got to do with expectations, but we've got, we've got expectations. You know, I don't, I didn't, well, that's, that's, that's what it's got to do. I, I didn't expect her to react like that. And it, it shook me. And obviously it must have shook me because 44 years on, I can still think, think of something like that. So I, I think um, this is a kind of, it seems to me like a deeper point about kind of looking at our expectations. Again, I was talking to this lady, uh, Dr. Mum, this morning, and she said uh, during her pre-approval training to be a doctor parent, they had an idea about contact. And they that idea changed. And if that idea hadn't changed, then they wouldn't have got their second son. They wouldn't have been, they, they wouldn't have got the second son. Some, something changed about the adoption, mm -hmm. whether it should be open or there was something that changed. And they realized that. So the purpose, and when they realized that, they changed the, they changed their expectation, changed, and that led to a better outcome. I'm just wondering what you could share about what you've learned about that, the expectations that adoptive parents have with kids and uh, with the kids and how that can lead them down cul-de-sacs, it seemed to me. Mm. Mm. Have I given you enough to, to have a question? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, I've I've um, certainly heard stories of uh, uh, social workers who've been talking about working with parents that um, have explicitly said that um, they went into adoption with a, um, a clear view of how they thought their family was going to grow and how their adoptive child would grow and what they would grow into as an adult, if you like, and in terms of career and profession and uh, lifestyle and, and uh, the rest of it. Um, and for a lot of young people who've experienced developmental trauma, they may not be able to attain the expectation that parents have for them. 
um, because of physical reasons or developmental delay reasons. Not all, but you know, for some children that will be the position. And actually, they've uh, they've said verbally that their expectations have changed of what they expected from their child, and um, in a positive way, you know, that they've understood that actually what their view and their dream might have been for their child is not what their child will achieve or, or wants to achieve. Um, and it's become clear as they've got older in terms of uh, education and their attainment and what they might do post-education. Um, and I, th I think that's um, I think that's really powerful, isn't it, really? Because I guess people looking outside and thinking about what does adoption look like who are not involved in it in any way or don't know anybody who's gone through that process uh, and have that family background will think, well, actually, there's a child now in a loving home and a loving family, so why is that everything hunky-dory? Um, well, life's not like that. <laughs> um, and actually, it's it's highly likely now in terms of adopting uh, children that um, there will be complexities and challenges that, that uh, happen along the journey. And your ability as a parent to think about what what how can my child be happy, safe and thrive? I think those are the three kind of things rather than what might your expectation be um, of of what you'd hope your hopes and dreams might be your hopes and dreams change don't they I think I think when you, you you've got that uh when you've got that change understanding of where you might have started from to what the reality is of where you are um and uh, working through those differences and difficulties um so I think a couple of things if I draw a couple of threads together there um you, you've been talking very much about a child-centered approach from your work um, uh, in in the community, and you, you used a you used a word um, was it outreach. What, what was you, you described your role? And I think it was social outreach or something. What was what was the role? Years ago, when I was a detached youth worker. Yeah, sorry, so, uh, I didn't explain what that was. Was what, <laughs> a, a, a what youth worker? A detached youth oh, worker. Detached, yeah, a detached yeah. youth worker. Yeah. But, so I, I think there's some incredible, for me, there's some incredible lessons there, um, which I want to draw to the draw to the top, because as a couple of times you were saying, I was thinking, how does this apply? I'm thinking, how does this apply? Mm. But what you're, as, as a detached youth worker, yeah? Yeah. So detached, a thing that's popping into my head is like, detaching from our expectations so yeah yeah so if, absolutely if, yeah. if we did if, if we focus you know um you were very humble and open and youth focused in that approach and that served you in really good stead because that's the foundation if you focus if you focus on um the child or the youth or the uh, adoptee and you make their their world your world. You step into their world. You build the engagement. You build the empathy. You build it stronger. The more you're in their world, mm. uh, and if you're if we and, and, and the the less the, the the less we're in our world and in our expectations, and the more we're in our 
child's world, the more likely we're going to be able to understand what it is yeah. uh, that, that, that drives him or her and help them thrive. Does that, I mean, that seems almost like too, too obvious and too big picture. Um, does that make any I sense? Yeah, I, I was thinking, uh, I, don't, I think it does make sense because I think it's actually an approach that we use all the way through engaging with uh, potential adopters and going through the preparation process with adopters and finally becoming uh, a family and having your child place or children place with you. That actually, um, it's about that whoever that worker is being in there and listening and engaging, but also encouraging and influencing by sharing skills and experience, but not by uh, being overtly, um, what's the word I want to use? Dominating, I suppose. It's about working, walking alongside somebody in their journey of becoming an adopter. Um, and uh, that, that preparation in terms of enabling adoptees to thrive starts right from that point, because it's a theme that has to go all the way through being uh, supporting adopters and and their children as they grow into adults um, so it starts right at the very beginning of the work and um, you know I've, I've seen from working a, a, alongside our social workers and listening to their stories of talking with families how important that is all the way through um, and how skilled you need to be in order to do that and to be, it's, you mentioned the word curious at the start of this. You have to have curiosity. You have to engage with the difficult conversations um, in order to be able to support adopters and adoptees as, the, as they grow into being adults. It's a whole life process. Yeah. And um, other, I, I often like, I like to aim off. Um, so we're always talking about, you know, what helps. Is there anything that, you, you've seen that uh, um, that really st stops a, a, a adoptees thriving. Is there other other things that? So one of those could be, you know, like being fixed in your expectations would be. You know, so let's 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 hold our expectations lightly, um, rather than. Uh, being fixed in our ex expectations and obviously I'm, I'm, I'm making a uh, I'm polarizing this for the sake of uh, for the sake of clarity but what what have you what have you seen is a really bad really bad idea when it comes to um, oh, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm struggling here what stops adoptees thriving that's a good question um, I think there can be a whole range of things. I mean, you talked about schools earlier, and I, I think uh, I don't want to blame schools because I think it's about a, you know a learning process in terms of understanding how to best support young people who've got uh, a trauma, uh, developmental trauma background. But I think actually education is a big part of a child's life in growing up. It's where they spend an awful lot of the time, whether they're with peers or whether with trusted adults learning. And education for me is about learning for life um, what, and not just about coming out with qualifications and accreditation. But I think we've got uh, generally a system that works around behavioural aspects rather than, rather than about understanding a trauma-informed approach and I know that there are areas that uh, of the country that are using that much more trauma-informed approach in their 
uh, work with schools um, and uh, the whole system within a city. So, uh, for example, Plymouth's got a trauma-informed approach as a city. They've recognised it as an approach. And I think that's really key because actually you come from it from a completely different place in terms of trying to understand and support um, young people in their setting, in their educational setting. And that has an impact both on their um, life at school and life at home. Um, and it does link into expectations because if the expectation is you've got to achieve, you know, 10 GCSEs at A level, at A grade, then it's, it, is it the right expectation? What's the right expectation for your child and how do you support them to achieve the best they can be? Um, and I'm not, I'm not blaming schools in this because I think part of it is about time and pressure on a time, but I do think it's something that needs to be uh, taught to train, you know, in training for teachers uh, coming into the education system to think differently about what might have gone on for that for that child in their life. What's their experience? What's the impact of their life? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that expectation thing is key again, and something that pops into my head is, and because I've worked with uh, non-adoptive parents and adoptive parents, uh, and so this is a parent thing, right? So all parents expect the school to deliver for their child, you know, and, but the, you know, the second, the secondary school's got a thousand kids in it. So yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it, it's a false expectation and it, and it, it and it's a recipe for being, um, it, it, it's a recipe for feeling a bit cheesed off to put it bluntly. <laughs> it's a bit like my, uh, my expectations of uh, bank call centers, right? So <laughs> the problem is me. <laughs> I, I get I, I, I know it's going to be I know it's going to be tricky to get through to speak to somebody because they've let, they, they shut all the branches down because it's too much money. And yet I still create the own problem, yeah. my own problem in my head. But uh, so I wanted to, to touch on the expectations in terms of this, uh, in, in terms of um, schools. Uh, every parent expects has high expectations of the schools and then those expectations get dashed um, because the school has got to handle a thousand kids, not just one. But one, one thing that, I, that comes into my mind with this, uh, with the, like the trauma-informed stuff, which clearly I, I, I'm a big fan of. But if you look at the numbers, you've got something like 5,000 kids adopted in the UK each year and you've got 600,000 kids in each year group. Mm. So five, 5,000 over 600, we are talking about a very small mm. number and, and, and schools are set up for the majority, for not the minority. Yeah. And, and, and so if, if our expectations, uh, our expectations are going to be, we should hold our expectations lightly because otherwise, like me in the call centres, um, I am going to get frustrated about waiting on mine for 40, mm. 40 seconds. Yeah. I'm the only person, 40 seconds, 40 minutes, but the only person that expectation hurts is me. Mm. And I, I, I know this stuff, and yet the call centres really still cheese me off. So it, yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I do. And I completely get your point if you look at it on the numbers level. But I guess... I think about it in terms of how many young people might be sitting in a classroom who've been through the care system and therefore it's broader than just uh, adoption. Yeah, it will still be a minority, but there'll be some children in every class. And depending on where the school is, 
if it's an area that's uh, got more poverty, for example, it, they may have a higher percentage of children within the school and the class that, that have experienced uh, being in the care system or on the edge of care. And therefore, it may be more important as an issue for them as a school than it may be for um, uh, other schools who only have one child within a class. I, I completely get that. But I think having an understanding of a trauma-informed approach is beneficial to all children, not just children who've experienced trauma, um, because it's about not seeing it as a behavioural issue in terms of behaviour and looking at what else is going on and supporting a child in a holistic sense. Um, but I completely get your point, yeah. Um, it depends, it just depends what your expectation is. But I guess my expectation is I would hope we get to a place where all teachers have had some training around trauma-informed approaches yeah. so that it it helps to inform their practice as a teacher overall. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you know you talked about that behavior and behavior and education? Is there any, perhaps we could um is there anything that you've learned from that that you think is important to, to parents as well? That, that you know. Because people talk about this all the time, you know, looking mm. beyond the behaviour and, um, mm. uh, but what helps? What helps that? We all know that we should do stuff, right? We all know that we should eat more fruit and vegetables, and we all know this stuff, and but uh, and yet we don't. So, what is it? Um, is there anything that you could, uh, any light that you could bring on this on this behaviour issue, which seems to be a big thing when kids are acting out and violent and any, yeah. anything that you could share from your professional experience? Um, I guess it comes back to the real basis about listening and talking a, a, a with young people and understanding what's going on for them. And the, the, I've got a couple of examples in my head, but they're not related to uh, adoption, but they are related to parenting and, and family and expectation at school. So um, I did some work a few years back that um, was that the school was a, a really supportive school and wanted to engage with um, young people who weren't attending school um, frequently. And it was uh, not beneficial to them and it wasn't beneficial to the school because they get penalised in terms of their targets that they've got to meet. So it was driven by both angle, but um, they wanted to do something really positive and proactive. So they identified some young people who were willing to work with them in the school. Um, not many families, but one of them was a, a girl who was uh, 14, I think she was at the time, and, and she was in a large family. And um, she quite often didn't go to school and the school couldn't understand why, because she was quite bright. She engaged well when she was at school and they couldn't understand what was going on. So it was a pro it was a program about supporting the young person and supporting the, the family. There was a real recognition that actually home life impacts on school life, which is great, great observation and absolutely 100 percent it does. Sure. <laughs> um, so in working with that family uh, who were you know, open and willing to talk with us and, and the young person was, when it came down to it, that the real reason and the issue behind why that child didn't go to school as much as the school wanted was because the mother had suffered a bereavement of one of her children years before, maybe five or six years before. Um, but it was still having an impact on her about uh, wanting to see where her children were and know that they were safe. And so she, in a way, she kind of kept them at home more to not look after her, but to kind of do things around the home. But so she got sight of them and she knew they were safe. So it came down to actually, if she'd been given some bereavement support at the time she'd lost a child, yeah 
it would have helped her and her family. Um, and so that was something positive that could come out of that. It did make a real difference uh, to the young person and to, and to the parents and the family. Um, but nobody knew that. Nobody had understood that. Um, and it's only because you, you spend time listening to what is the reason why something's going off in, in somebody's home. It's very different to what you think it may be. Um, and then you can find the right support or help people to find the right support if they're willing to want to do it that can make a difference. So understanding, yeah. Un yeah. Understanding, and it goes back to your engagement and en engagement, talking, understanding. Yeah. And, 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 and um, I guess expectations as well, is it? It's about, it, it's, it's about, and curiosity as well, the whole thing. Yeah. Wraps it together, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Fantastic, Ruth. Is there anything else that are, are there any questions that I haven't asked? That you I don't think so. I think, <laughs> I think we've been through quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's um, let's bring this into a class. Thank you very much for for sharing. Uh, I think it, it, the the ability to step out, um, uh, to, to to bring examples from outside the home, to to illustrate the importance of. Um, how, how we engage with our, our kids, I think is a, a vital one. And I think often we learn, we, we often, so most of my work, my, most of my understanding of consciousness, emotions, feelings, that sort of stuff has been outside of the world of adoption. Um, mm. uh, so I've got the, the big picture and then I apply that to, to, mm. to it's helped me. Um, so we often, I think we often look, we, we, we you know, we look in, in the lanes, we look in the lanes and, and sometimes if we take a, a look outside, outside the normal lane, then we find some useful nuggets of information there. And, and um, I also think it, it kind of, um, it, we let our, it, somehow we let our guard down. Somehow it's, we're more open now. Like yeah. You know, if we're open to hear a story from a different, different world. Yeah. 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 Good on you. Thank you very much for, for, for all your time and all, all the gems that you've shared with the listeners. Uh, it's been a, an honour to have you on. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you, Simon. Thanks, Rick.